Hello everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I have a really exciting announcement for you all. If you've been listening to previous episodes of the podcast, you might remember my interview with Steph Pringle from Chicken and Chips, as well as another episode with Simon Williams, who is a performance and mindset coach. Simon and Steph have actually teamed up and he've created an amazing new course for actors called the Actors Ascension Program. It's a six-week coaching program that aims to help actors achieve their goals and build careers of creative fulfillment, longevity and success, which is exactly what we all want. The course is an online program and will be available wherever you are based. As you remember from the podcast, Simon is a former athlete, award-winning filmmaker and a mindset and performance coach. And of course, Steph is an award-winning casting director and the co-founder of Chicken and Chips Casting, which works across film, TV and big brand advertising. What I love about this course is it aligns with what I've always been talking about, which is that mindset has such an astronomical effect on your career, like how you think about yourself as a creative or an actor, how you think about your career, like it's just insane the effect of those beliefs around that, that it has on your career. And so not only do you get to work on your mindset stuff in this course, but you also get to work with a casting director on all of the practical acting skills as well. I think that this work is completely relevant to whatever stage you're at in your career because you can always keep improving in some ways on your mindset and your skills. Okay, so what is included in the six weeks for this course? With Steph, you get three industry lectures you get three scene workshops, you get one AAP rap exclusive Q&A and you get 24 hour access to ask her any questions that you have, which is awesome. And then with Simon, you get six Your Ascension sessions, six Empower workshops, one AAP rap exclusive Q&A and you also get 24 hours access to Simon to ask him questions as well. My goodness. The cost for this entire course is $250 and that's an insane amount of things that you get for that, especially when you're doing so many damn workshops. I am actually going to be doing this course, which is why I'm so damn excited to share it with you and I'm really pushing the value of it. I'm going to put the link for this course in the bio, in the podcast bio below. So if you're interested in signing up, go and click the link. I would really love to see all of your faces there and to just be like successful actors with me. I think that would be really, really lovely and fun. So click the link below And without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Be So Dramatic. My name is Rachel, and this is the podcast where I talk to different people in the entertainment industry to discover what their job involves and how they got there. For this week's episode, I have with me Jim Robison. Jim is a producer and the founder of Luna Pictures. The latest film from Luna Pictures, Moonrock for Monday, is of course now streaming on Binge and won a ton of awards on the festival circuit. I was so interested to talk to Jim because he is a producer. He has knowledge around one of the subjects that I think is the 
biggest subjects that gets gatekeeped within our industry, and that is how to finance a production or how to finance a film. So Jim actually breaks that down and he's completely transparent about the ways you can finance a project in this episode. And it is just, it's so important for people who want to finance projects to know this if you are someone who has tried to finance a project or if you are someone who is curious about what it takes to finance a project this episode is so good for that like the information in this is astounding that you will not find this on the internet you will have to go digging for this information that Jim talks about so I'm really excited that I'm able to share this with you guys because I think it's so important to share information like this and not to hide it so that it's hindering other people's progress you know I will say a quick note before we jump into this episode. Um, You may hear some background noise in this episode. And crazily enough, it's actually the rain that was happening on Jim's end up in Byron Bay. We recorded this when we had that crazy rain. So um, I hope you find it like ambient. (laughs) But, you know, obviously we record no matter what. So I am very appreciative that Jim um, was able to record with me during that time. But yeah so I hope you enjoy this episode as always you can give us a rating on Apple podcast or Spotify if you feel like it and if you feel like reaching out to me you can do so with the contact information that is linked below I always love hearing from you guys it's honestly such an encouragement to me and I really appreciate any messages that you do send across Um, I love it so thank you and without further ado let's jump in Jim, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Um, I'm so uh, glad that you can join me all the way from Byron Bay. It must be very nice to um, be doing your thing and be working, but from Byron Bay. Yeah, I've just um, hosed down the uh, gumboots and um, got out of the mud and, you know, everything's good. Uh, so we're here and I'm dry. <laughs> yeah, that's the most important thing. Have you guys been getting a lot of rain recently? Oh, just a little bit. <laughs> just an inch or two. I saw a car, t- car turn into a boat just before, but no. Nah. No, it's, it's, it seems to have um, settled down, so that's good. So, yeah, but it's it's definitely been crazy times up here. Oh, yeah, definitely. We think like summertime bushfires is usually the biggest issue for Australia, but not this year. It's the opposite. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But hey, we're a resilient bunch, so we're we're just going to roll with the punches. It's true. It's definitely true. Now, you are a producer, an executive producer, and you are the co-founder of Luna Pictures. So I'm really excited to talk to you about your work because I think it covers such an interesting part of the industry that a lot of us don't really learn about, which is financing, getting money for projects and producing projects, which is all of like the development and pre-production production production and post-production of a project. And so that stuff, I think we really don't get taught a lot of it unless you're specifically studying something like you did, like finance at uni. Um, So I want to know where your interest in the entertainment industry first started out. Well, it stemmed it stemmed from in front of the camera. Actually, I I I was 
for all my sins, I, I kind of had a stab at acting and, and whether I was any good at or not is debatable. <laughs> um, but I, I, I love the arts. I loved, I loved theater. I love going to Sydney theater company or any of the, you know, Belvoir or any of the, any of the local, um, theater companies in Sydney, which was well, my, my stomping ground. Um, but having a business background, I, I guess having a bit of a quarter life crisis, I, I kind of figured out a way to merge the two. Mm. So I merged the, the whole, my business background with, with being a, you know, a lover of the, the you know, art, the arts and, and being a bit of a thespian and, and, you know, it, I kind of, I kind of fell into it by, by, um, by attrition really. You say you started out as an actor, but you have had recent acting credits. So you're still technically acting, right? Yeah. I, I, I occasionally swing both ways. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you, when you went to uni to study finance, so that was obviously like a, um, uh, like, was that more for you, as you said, like a kind of a, another interest, but it was also like, oh, this seems like a stable thing to go into rather than acting is definitely not a stable thing to go into? Yeah, more, more so the, the latter, what you said. I, I, I guess I, this whole process of, of acting or producing or but mainly producing now, I'd say that's like 90% of what I do or 95%. Um, it's kind of been coming out of my actor closet for, for a long period of time because I've always, I kind of grew up in a, I had a very strict grandfather and, and, um, he, you know, he was, went to a South African boarding school and was like, you, you know, at uni I was looking at becoming a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or something respectable. Right. And, um, so I kept on delaying university. So I found every reason under the book to delay uni. So I'd, I'd join the army reserves and I'd, I, I kind of split my HSC over two years, but cause really, cause I, that D day for me was, I just don't know what I really want to do. And I, don't, I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into a particular craft. So when, but inevitably that, that day came around. And so I, I went with business just because I was like, okay, this is pretty broad, right? It's, it's a bachelor of commerce ec combined degree. If I like economics, I'll go into that. If I like commerce that, but it, it, at the end of the day, it's, yeah, it's, it's useful. And so that, that was really just a broad degree. It wasn't, I didn't major in film finance. It was very, it was more just majoring in accounting, really. I guess that, that kind of yeah. really, it's really, uh, and the funny thing is, is, is that, you know, even now today I draw upon those skills and, but I, I find myself doing more of the less, you know, quote unquote glamorous stuff and being behind a spreadsheet and, and skinning finance plans and skinning budgets. So definitely was a worthwhile move although at the time I, had, I was like 18 I had no idea what I was wanting to do I just wanted to basically delay the inevitable <laughs> yeah and it's funny that you went into the army reserves because you were you were in Hacksaw Ridge which is a war film so you were like uh Mel Gibson don't worry yeah. I've got this one uh I'll just repeat what I know <laughs> it's fine well yeah the casting call did came it, we, there was a casting call that shot out and by the way my 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 scene is like blink and you miss it kind of one line type thing. But the, what was really cool about Hacksaw Ridge, and I, I, I still tell my mates this today, I still get residual checks in the mail <laughs> and that doesn't happen unless the film's in profit, which is yeah. Never. And, but I mean, that film did remarkably well. That, I mean, it boxed off for office, like an extraordinary amount. I think it was over 200 million from memory. And they shot it on like a budget of like pretty modest for an, it was classified as an independent, even though it had a studio feel to it. But at the time, you know, that it was, 
I still get residual checks from that. And it was, I, I call Hacksaw Ridge my, my film school. Yeah. Because I got paid. I, I was part of a, a bunch of extras that were like called the hero eight. So we, whether we got a line or a role or a bit part or a small part was very, it was on the line. Like we, it wasn't guaranteed when we, when we got into the project. And um, so we, I was part of the hero eight, which meant we got to be in the core platoon with all the main actors like Vince Vaughn and, 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 and um, Andrew Garfield and, and all the hero cast. And so we got to basically watch Mel Gibson direct for three months and I'm watching the first AD PJ and Mel and it was just, it was, it was, I, I got to go to that every day. We were doing overtime because we were doing stupid hours, like 12 hour days. So I think that year I, I pulled like 25K from Hacksaw Ridge just for working on it for like three months. And I'm still getting residual checks. So it's probably the, I, I'm like, it's the film school that paid me because I got to watch Mel do his thing on set for three months in a really intimate way. And it was just, I was just a sponge. I just shut up for a change and just let everything kind of unfold. So that was a really cool little yeah definitely but yeah it's funny that that i've done i've done that and then obviously i I kind of was involved in danger close which is another war film so it's funny how my past is kind of coming back to haunt me i don't i don't know whether it's the army guy um, the army gods (laughs) on my on my back it's Um, like the universe was like just so you know you're gonna do a few big war films so you're gonna have to go and join the army reserve so you know what you're talking about yeah and yeah, and look, I've, I've always had a res- great respect for the Anzacs. I mean, the the, the bravery, bravery, and the courage they they you know. And my, my both both grandfathers were Anzacs, and I've got a couple of war films in development. So who knows about that? It, it might not be the end of that that <laughs> war film. And, and not not that I want to glorify war. I, I, I must say that I, I think war is despicable and reprehensible. But the, it's the courage and, and and the beauty that I find that you find you know in, in these terrible times, like with Ukraine, all the all the humanitarian stories of courage and bravery and love that's that's what I'm drawn Mm, to yeah I think war films they just they have that element of the hero and like really hard well hardships (laughs) in in war films and you know the stories are always that of like mostly the underdog becoming the hero that sort of thing and we all love that we all love to see triumph in the characters that we love. And so yeah. I think war films are a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, as horrific as they are, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in terms of the finance side of things, so when did you uh, decide to go into producing and when did that finance background come in handy when you started producing? I think I, I, I ended a relationship and I was kind of like, okay, well, well, no, the truth is I, I walked out of the, off the platform of the train at Wynyard Station. I just saw a sea of suits coming at me and I was dressed in a suit and I was doing, I was doing a recruitment job at the time, recruiting for uh, like very senior, finance, very senior finance directors and management accountants and, and that kind of thing. And I was deeply unhappy. I was making great money, but it was deeply unhappy on, on like a fulfillment type level. And I just, I, I, hit, I had a, hit a wall and I think, Someone had asked me, what would you do if it made you truly happy? And I went back to my thespian drama days at school where I did drama and I was like, well, I'd, I'd make movies. And I was that little geek in school who like, um, not that I, I, I'm not saying geek in a derogatory term. I, I think I think geeks are wonderful. I am one. Um, but I, I wrote a letter to, you know, George Lucas at Lucasfilm because um, he ran a company called ILM, which is a special effects company, when I was like 12, asking for a job, even though that was technically impossible because I was too young. But I, I, I kind of thought, you know, <laughs> I, I, I go with that inner child kind of thing. It was kind of a, yeah as 
as crazy as that sounds, it was really like, a, oh, well, look, I've got nothing else to lose. I, I was, and that I think when you go through a little bit of a difficult time in your life, it's actually really empowering because you do have that sense of I've got nothing to lose. So it actually, you can turn that type of time, whether it's some sort of existential crisis or financial crisis or, you know, relationship crisis, but whatever it is, it all came to a point where I was like, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to try acting and, and filmmaking. And I kind of went into it with a, I'm going to try acting and filmmaking. So acting was always first and foremost at the time. This is like 10 years ago. And then filmmaking was the, the plan B. And it just so happens that the plan B is kind of overtaken the plan A because acting is incredibly hard and you really need to be in that top 1%. I mean, I, I think it's as hard as being kind of a professional athlete at soccer. It's, it's, or any other type of athlete for that matter. I think it's that incredibly challenging to make a full-time living. But yeah, so, and, and then just filmmaking overtook, overtook the acting career and that was about eight years ago. And then I think all those things from the army and from accounting and from recruitment, I was able to traverse into producing because I could cherry pick from my world experience because I was 30 at the time, you know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like I went into producing in my 20s. It was, it was a scary move because I was kind of late in life. Yeah, that's so, that's, uh, I mean, not that 30 is at all old. It's still very young. No, we're not going to lay here, are we, Rachel? <laughs> but it's just, it's very interesting to me when people do pivot, mm. when they do get to, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, whatever, mm. and go, no, I am going to try this creative endeavor because it's usually something that they've been thinking about their whole 20s, mm. but just when you know I like and as you say like you had a strict grandfather so it makes sense mm. as to why you felt held back mm. in your 20s to go no I have to do the job where I catch the train to win it and I wear a suit and tie yeah. and that sort of thing yeah. and then you it's like there is nothing that you can do to stop having that interest and so you're either gonna have to follow that interest and mm. follow your heart or you're going to uh, end up deeply unhappy and probably have a midlife crisis. So it's like, it's something that you can never fight. And unfortunately, as you say, it is an industry which is so hard and fickle and, but it's like, it's what we love mm. and it's what we love doing. And so it's like, well, even though it is hard, like running a marathon is hard, but people still do it for some reason. I don't know why yeah, I, don't know I why. won't be doing yeah, it. No <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's like, just because something is hard doesn't mean that it doesn't bring you joy mm. and that like the difficulty of it doesn't bring joy as well. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's very interesting. And how did you find that with like the people around you when you were coming into your thirties and you were like, uh, just so everyone knows, um, I've quit my job and I'm going to uh, be becoming an actor yeah. and filmmaker. How did that go oh, down? The whole actor thing. It was like, it, um, I mean, I had I had mates who were very established. One, two, two of my best friends owned a cocktail bar. And I, I knew quite, I, I think everyone thought I was a little bit crazy. That's just fact. I, I think everyone was like, <laughs> oh, he's, he's, he's not handling this breakup well. Um, <laughs> he wants to be an actor. And so it was, and you know, because who you hang out with in high school, I don't know if you're like me, Rach, but I, I don't hang out. I mean, I, I my, my, my set of friends kind of changed in my 20s to be my organic set of friends. Yeah. And so, because we weren't forced into a bunch of 30 kids with in, under a school umbrella. We, so the people in school didn't know my high school background. They didn't know I loved acting in high school. They didn't see me either, all the high school plays. So it was really left field for all them. And even mum and dad and, and like my 
my kind of immediate family, it was all very, uh, I think they were all, they, 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 no, no one ever, I never got kind of attacked for it, but I think everyone, you could feel that sense of like, oh, okay, that's, yeah, good luck. <laughs> like, it, it, was, it was more like that. It was yeah. more what wasn't said. It wasn't really encouraged. And I think that was the thing you had to kind of get to ter- come to terms with. I had to kind of go, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I had to almost be like, be like business plan about it, which I think it forces you into, if you're taking it seriously, be an actor or any filmmaker, a producer, a director, you need to kind of almost have a bit of a, bit of a plan because it's, it's incredibly tough. And I, I, I think acting's more tough than producing, but at the same time, you independent filmmaking is incredibly hard. I mean, I think as a nation, we make roughly under 40 feature films a year. Of a population of twenty five million. Oh, that's oh, nothing. Yeah, so I looked at the actor nominees, or the sorry, the entrance. It wasn't even the people who were nominated; it was the entrance, the people who entered the actor. Like, so basically, if you made a film, feature film last year, you were one of like less than forty five people in the country, and so when you put that, you know, down on and kind of on on a per capita basis, it's not a lot. It, I I really love when my fellow filmmakers get films up because I I believe that every feature film. Is a, is a basically a small miracle. I really do. I, I I think whether I like the film or not, I'm there's at least a real healthy respect from me because I go well. I I know it's it takes years in development. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I think that yeah I, I didn't have I didn't really have this support, but they never were really against it. It was just more like a, uh, I think they everyone thought I was a little bit mad at the time. And now it's only now that they're kind of coming around going oh you actually you actually are still doing it and you're making it kind of okay. So yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, like I feel that, like that... I'm just getting started. I, I, I really feel like I'm just getting started to be honest. I, I feel like, yeah, I'm very early years. Yeah. And I, I completely, I know what that feeling is of like, you've been doing something for years and years and years. And then like only years and years into it, do you actually go, Oh, this is, this is my profession. Can I actually call mm-hmm. myself a podcaster when people ask what my job is? And I'm like, oh, I guess I can now. <laughs> you know, it's that, it's that weird yeah, thing yeah. of like... like and when was the first time someone called you a podcaster? People have been saying it for... A, and you were like, oh, that... Uh, people have been saying it for like a while. Like since I started because it's like technically true which was four years ago and I guess only recently have I been like oh okay podcasting is one of my jobs and that's really bizarre that it took me four Mm. and four years I would say in terms of what we're talking about is such a short amount of time like some people take 10 years Mm. to realize oh okay like I am a filmmaker or I am an actor because you're always it's that looking for or like waiting to experience that one thing that you think is going to make you feel like you are that career like for actors I think it's always oh when I book that tv show or when I book that big film that's when I'll be able to say oh yeah I'm an actor like I'm an actual actor yeah but those which is ridiculous right yeah yeah and those things they they either like don't happen in the way that you think they do or when they happen you're just like, it doesn't feel any different because you've been doing the thing for years beforehand. So it's like you're just turning up and doing the same thing. And you're like, oh, 
oh okay Ooh. like this uh, I thought I was gonna think wow I've made it like I feel like an actor now but feeling like a filmmaker or an actor is exactly what you're doing right now you know yeah it's it's funny you say that because I I wholeheartedly agree with you it's not some big announcement to the world it's it's like I think I think for me it was I mean, if you, if you can think of the first time you were called a podcast by someone else, not yourself, but and you were interested, I was at I was at a table at a restaurant in LA, and a very senior producer who I'd been working with basically turned to the table and said, "Oh, this is Jimmy's a producer," and that was there was a it was a real sense of validation. And I'm, I'm you know not to get sentimental or anything, but it was, it was like, "Oh wow, he thinks I'm a producer." I didn't even think I was a producer. I really <laughs> didn't. And, but I know what you mean. It's, it's this kind of like, cause how do you like, at least when you're a doctor or a lawyer, you do three years, you study your bar or you do your, yeah, and, and you're in, you, you, you've got a, there's no producer credential on my wall and there is no, there's none for the, some of the best and worst producers on the planet. It's, <laughs> it's something where you, you, it's literally, you're doing it. And the same with acting, you don't like an acting degree doesn't make you an actor. Um, cause there's plenty of people who did NIDA and Whopper and BCA and they're all in other jobs now. Um, and there's plenty of people, and, and, and there's people who, plenty of people who didn't do NIDA or, or VCA or, or Whopper and they're killing it as an actor. And so when do you define yourself as a, as a filmmaker, an actor or a director, you know, when you direct a short or when you direct a feature, it's, it's very ambiguous and subjective. And it's, it's, I think that's something that every person who's a filmmaker really struggles with on a, on a really internal. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I, I think what it doesn't help the situation is when you get you know into conversations with people that don't work in the industry and they go oh what do you do mm. and you say oh, i'm a i'm a producer oh what have you produced and you're like ah mm. oh, well you know this thing and that thing but you wouldn't have seen it and uh oh, it's the same same thing with yeah. actors oh what have i seen you in oh yeah. not home and home and away or not neighbors ah oh. Well, I yeah. don't know it then. And you kind of go, oh, that yeah. sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's, 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 and, and why do we feel this sense to prove ourselves to people who have, you know, non-artistic degrees who can measure their, you know, whether they're a, a, an electrician by I've got my trade or whether I've got, you know, it's, it's or any other job where you, there's a very almost clear defined measurement of whether you are that professional or not mm. because yeah so it, it is it's tricky but I think you know at the same time I think there's lots of bodies around that actually give us a lot of guidance so in terms of you know when you're applying for, to Screen Australia for funding or government bodies or you're they make you list your credits and credits is a really I guess it's it's our way of it's the industry's way of defining people it really is I think people it opens a lot of doors when you get a couple under your belt and it's certainly, it's hard to get those first ones. And, you know, I think with that, that, that kind of guideline, I would, I would just say to anyone, the best thing I learned was to surround myself people with people of, you know, with, with tons of credits that I wanted. So I'd like, okay, who's produced feature films in this budget range from zero to five million. And now I'm looking at from five to 10 million or, and, and, or executive produced at this level or, who's worked with this, these companies. And I, so I kind of, I don't benchmark myself on that level. I just, I go, okay, they're the people I need to be working with. They're the people I need to align myself. And I've been really hum, humbled and fortunate to, and I've, and, and I've really tried hard to align myself with people who are 10 times better than me. I, I see, I, I've been, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, 
I feel like I'm walking with giants at the moment. So that's, I think that was key. It was, and yeah, I think there's, there's a bit of framework there, I guess. Mm. It's yeah. It's that saying of like, you are the five closest people around you. I've, I can't remember exactly mm. what the saying is, but it's so true in our industry. And it's something yeah. that I've definitely found with myself and like who, who are the creatives that I'm surrounding myself with. And it's, it's hard because when people hear this, they go, oh, okay, so I'm going to email Jim because I want mm. to network with Jim because he's got what I want. And it can be such a superficial, um, not very honest thing. But I think the important thing mm. is to find like organically the people that you do gravitate towards and that as you say you have an interest in and so it's not just yeah. to get something out of that person and to use that person for your benefit it's to uh yeah. be in that same energy of like okay this person clearly knows what they're talking about if like i can mm. at least learn something from something that they've said and so mm. inevitably when you are surrounded by those people who um, do have what you want or are aspiring for similar things and have a great mindset about it. It changes your reality in like, it, it's just crazy how, how different things can go. And I, I found that definitely like with being an actor and um, surrounding myself with people who are like producers or directors or who have a production company or managers or something like that who have a similar mentality to me and who are people that I enjoy working with and who mm. like um on the side casually have great credits and so it's like a bonus mm. on the end of it but it's yeah it's interesting mm. with the whole networking sort of thing to uh, not come at it from like a dishonest sort of what can I get out of you kind of thing which is very interesting yeah because I look I, I I do get a lot of emails once you make a couple of films you get you start getting a lot of emails of from from everyone from composers to actors to to other film producers aspiring producers who who go okay well you've had a bit of success here like how do I align myself with you and I think I always I always like to think I give them a little bit of time of day because I put myself back in that in those shoes, which I was once in. Um, but I, but if I'm being brutally honest, a lot of it's like, oh, I don't have anything right now. Um, and if they, if I feel like it is that, if it's coming from a place of what can I just get out of you, I, I'm more reluctant to help them. Um, and it is, I mean, people come to like a gaffer or a grip or a DOP and they're like, I want you to shoot this thing. I, I need you as, and it's like, it's literally money for higher service you, that that gaffer or that group or that dop is expecting or that makeup artist is expecting that okay well you, you want me on the day that's my right but but when someone comes to you and says i want you to be my producer what they're really saying is i want you to work your guts out to get my project up on a pro bono basis with no promise of payment it's all contingent on whether we get the film up and if you get the film up by the way it's still my film but you, i'll give you a cut and it's like okay that's that's, getting a film up is really hard. So I'm taking like a one in 10 chance that that film's going to get up. So when people come to me and, they, and they're coming from a real, you know, they, they, the thing is their intention, they're coming from a real place of quite innocence and, and naivety maybe, but it's, it's quite innocent. You know, they're going, I, I just, I'm looking for a producer and, but in my head, I'm going, that's a load of work and you're not going to pay me up front for it. So it's, I, I've, on what you said, 
I think the more people who come from it from a genuine angle and get my interest or, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at talking to senior producers and asking if I can collaborate with them, I always try and offer something back to them. I think, what can I offer this person that they don't have? And that's a real hard question because they, they, they you know, they, you're, you're obviously approaching them because they seem like they're doing very well on, on the surface. But it, through a couple of, you know, through, through, through your first or tw- two points of contact with them, you'll quickly establish a gap because no one's perfect, and and everyone, no one has their shit together. <laughs> Even the best producers out there, I don't. <laughs> and because I'm, I'm, I'm working with some pretty senior producers, and you think, okay, wow, you. You're really time poor. What about if I handle that for you? Or what if I, if I if I start filling out those those um, government body funding applications? I know how to do it. Or you, you try and figure out what they're time poor and they just don't want to do, and take that off their plate. And they will, I promise you, love you. And if they love you for more than three months or six months, they're probably going to start imparting a lot of wisdom to you. So if I'm mm. going to run if, if if I had a graduate email me and for anyone listening and said, hey, can I come and do this? <laughs> for three months, but all, all I want for you is to train me up a bit and I'll do X, Y, Z. And I had stuff on my plate to do that. I would 100% take them on my wing. And I think that's the key is to, is to have it a reciprocal relationship whenever you're looking for a mentor. But mentors are key in this business because there are no degrees or, or you know, qualifications I can stick on my wall where I can say, okay, I can start charging this out as my, as my hourly rate now. But it's, so it's very much a, a network industry. And I think, you know, approaching it from a, point of view of what can I offer the person I'm wanting to impart wisdom onto me it's it's a very key thing oh my god yeah I completely agree with that and I think like the mistake that we all make and learn from is that we you know we have a script and we bring it to a producer and we say oh like I've got this script I think you're gonna love it and we think that that is enough to get the producer to work on it it's like no it doesn't matter if your script like it helps that it's an amazing script but that's not the thing that you're giving to the producer you know producing work is something that I admire so much and whenever I'm working with producers I'm like oh my god you're doing god's work because you're doing the work that I don't want to do and that I just do not have the time to do and so it is such a like a what can I do like can I can I do your washing for you because you're doing all of the the really the spreadsheets and the budget and the the getting of the monies for the project and it's like yeah I just think that that's such a an important lesson for people to learn is that having a good project and bringing that to a producer is not enough it's not and so it's like it it has to be so many more things and I think it's like you eventually do get humbled and go oh okay it can't just be I think I have an idea that you've never seen before kind of thing. yeah it, it's so true I, I think the whole old days of having a great script is oh this script's great they're gonna they're gonna the whole world's gonna fall in love with it and I'm gonna win Oscars and all I need to do is get it in front of the right person they those days are gone you I a lot of people who and I, I probably get about three to four projects across my desk every week and everyone loves their script of course and so my my criteria for whether I'll look at a project or not is does it have legs and so how many legs we got we got, we got two so a great script is not enough and so they need something else whether it's a do you have a do you have a do you have a great director attached do you have a great piece of talent attached do you have any finance attached do you have any government government support or marketplace funding whether it's a distributor or a sales agent or something 
But so, something else, so it stands out. So I'm not effectively having to work the project from scratch because that's if someone comes to me with a project that's pre-packaged, it's a far more attractive option for me, who I'm maybe running three or four projects or five projects at the same time, than someone who's coming to me with just a script. Because I'm like, okay, you've it, and I, and mm. you know every script that you'd think that we're working on would is, is already got that. So we've already. I'm not going to work on a project unless it's got a great script. So the four or five projects that you know I'm working on or any other producer out there who's basically producing full time and, and kind of made a couple of things is that they're, they're going to be, they're all great scripts. That's like a get out of bed entry level thing. You need to have that extra piece of thing, whether it's either, even if it's like, okay, I've got 10% of the budget raised in private equity, but something where, I look at the email and go, or any other producer looks at the email and goes, wow, okay, they've got this great script and they've been talking to this director who's like this, this, this kind of hot new director who's, so that's, that's what, that's what I look for when taking on projects and, and looking at any people under me. And, and, you know, I, I practice what I preach in terms that I recently, I, I was able to um, collaborate with some very senior producers um, and I mean, it's, it's in the public domain, so it's probably not, it, it's, I, I can share it, but it's it, um, Andrew Mason, who he EP'd the three Matrix films, and he, he he's partnered with Troy Lum of E1 Pictures, or Hop, the old Hopscotch films. And they, they've said, they've got another producer in the fold who's an Oscar-nominated producer, Gabrielle Tana. And so, you know, I didn't just bring them a great script, I brought them a great script that had been, uh, it been, it'd been played as a play all around the world, so it was actual intellectual property that I'd optioned. I'd sought out and optioned, and it, it was had played in West End, in 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 Broadway, in Sydney Theatre Company. So it had a pre-existing audience, but it also been commissioned by Kate Blanchett and and the Sydney Sydney Theatre Company. So it had it had that kind of oomph where they're like, okay, it's not just a great script. The great script has legs. It has this uh, it has this whole other thing to it that means it's a it's a it's basically a no-brainer and um and and it was funny because after we'd done the deal andrew mason and now we're kind of off on development land andrew mason said to me oh you know there's you know there's a thing called shopping list producers and i was like what's that i've never heard of that i hadn't heard of it like six months ago so what do you mean what do you mean shopping list producers and he said oh look it's people who literally scour the new york times bestseller or or, or, or they scour books but they scare they scour for pre-existing ip that has an inbuilt audience or something going for it already that they can then adapt or they can option the rights to and a lot of people think well, that's oh that's gonna be too expensive well, that's gonna be crazy money but it, it's really not it's it's not compared i mean I've, I've produced films from scratch with writers that i've worked with for free who have written for free that have ended up being far more expensive in the development process than than than, than this than by than optioning this this particular project that we we optioned which so and i went I, I, that opened up that was like a massive paradigm shift. i was like shopping list producing okay like I, I, I and i'm still i'm still <laughs> you know very much very green in that area but it was something that i was like oh wow this could there, there could be a thing here um and there's producers making a killing from it um just because they're you know everything they're touching has is it's an easy sell to the marketplace being distributors or sales agents or streamers because it's got it's got a, it, it's it's got a pre-existing IP behind it. And and there's a reason why all the big studios are rehashing Spider-Man 7 and Fast and the Furious 8. Because, <laughs> because it works. It yeah. works. And so, 
if you, if as indie producers, we get locked into this, I have to make my own original next Tarantino film, you know, and that's great if you can do it, if you wanted a hundred thousand that can do it, but it's not all, it's not necessarily always the way. So I think there's a lot of ways of producing things by just being out there and being on top of world events and being, and just thinking outside the box that way where you're actually, okay, this, I think there'll be an audience for this. Mm, Definitely. I think the whole idea of having a trajectory for your project before bringing on, say, producers is so important. As you say, like, you know, if someone comes to you and says, oh, I've got 10% of the budget or I... Um, like I've got this other production company attached to it or I've got this actor who has been doing a lot of amazing things attached to it. Having that trajectory is so important because it's not just like, Mm. I wrote a script, here it is. Mm. Um, Now you do your part. It's like, no, I I have thought about this in a, from a business perspective. And this is the, mm. the plan that I'm bringing to you. It might not go that way. You, you know, there might be a yeah. whole bunch of other steps in the in-between that we kind of had to change our minds on, but at least to have like, okay, so I have this script and now I've attached this production company and now we're going to look at filming a sizzle reel so that then we can go out and obtain funding, whether that be from government mm-hmm. or from private equity. And then from that, we're going to use that to attract other actors um, that, you know, mm-hmm. would have some sort of name to them, as well as casting people who are right for the role. And then from that, we can approach, say, a streaming service for the rest of the funding mm-hmm. for the project. And so it's like, it's actually thinking about all those steps rather than just saying, Hey Jim, I wrote a I wrote a script and I think it's really good and I want to get it on Netflix. So yeah. if you could email me back, um, that would be great. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> kind regards. That, you know, you, now you're 100 percent right because we live in a world where half the Aussies in LA are hanging out at Starbucks and they've all written two or three scripts. Yeah. So to, to come and and you know, like I said, gone are the days where a good script is enough. You you need to have that kind of cutting edge mm. and and i think the other thing is um you know it's pro- i think out of one of the biggest eye-openers for me producing films is that i kind of just went into it really naive like really green so so i just thought okay you it's a five it's a three million dollar film you need to raise three million dollars okay so i need like a rich dentist friend or a rich <laughs> family aunt, uncle and I, don't, I didn't have any of those um, and so the, like how we financed our first couple of films is quite, it's quite funny, funny story, but we, 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 oh, I, I came, I, I came into a small amount of money. And when I say small amount of money, I mean like probably a little bit less than a house deposit, but it could have been a house deposit. So while my friends and family and anyone who was around me had any common sense was kind of going, put it on a house deposit. I was, I'm going to go to Cannes Film Festival. I'm going to. I'm going to, I had, I had a script, you know, it was a great script. (laughs) That was, this is, you know, I I was, I was that guy. I was like, it's a good script. Why won't it get funded? And at the time it would, it'd been, it'd been optioned by Elijah Wood. So granted that it it had some street cred because at least his company, Spectrovision had optioned it, but that we never even got that film financed. But what that did was it led on to, I went to Cannes. I, I went with, and I made the best decision I think I ever made was, and he'll probably love me for saying this if he ever hears. But he basically, it was a guy called, by the name of Blake Norfield, who was a really charismatic actor from Home and Away. So I was like, I'm not going to go there by myself. I don't want to be, 
I know how functions work. You don't want to be that guy kind of in the corner acting all weird by yourself. I want a wingman. I want I want my wingman. So when I, I don't have any awkward moments, so I'm kind of that's off, and I can just feel free to work the room. I didn't even know. And when I say work the room, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I I, I was completely going in blind. But I'm going to Cannes Film Festival. I know there's going to be heaps of after parties and events and and business to business networking events and whatever. And whatever. I'm there to mingle. So. That was clear. So I took my small little money. I was like, oh, and, 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 you know, I, he didn't have any money at the time, but, you know, God bless him. He paid it all back to this day, which is great. Um, <laughs> and he, I mean, we founded Bronte Pictures together, which I, I, I that was before Lunar Pictures. And, and that just won Spa Breakthrough Business of the Year at this year's um, Screen Producer Awards. So he's killing it now. And, and he's doing really well and he's a real hustler. But I was like, I want the most charismatic person next to me to, and he had a script he wanted to produce and I, went, I had my script. We ended, up, we ended up finding some Russians to finance that one. <laughs> and then the next one we ended up, and it, was on a, it wasn't even, like we went to all the film markets, we went to all the sales agents and distributors and you feel like a bit of a used car salesman and you kind of do the rounds and you're like, oh, like we're not, we're nobody here. We're like, and, but you, you start to learn everything. You start to learn what gap financing is and what debt financing is and what soft money is and what hard money is and what, um, what MGs and DGs and all this kind of lingo that producers talk about. And you're kind of going, and, and very quickly, because the meetings are all very jammed in a market and that's where most people go for financing. And there's probably like five or six markets a year, m- major ones. Um, you start to kind of learn this business. It's, it felt like a trade show. So if, imagine, I don't know, have you ever been to a market, Rachel, or a film market? Not a film market, No. So they had like Cannes, Toronto, uh, American Film Market, AFM, um, Berlin. They're, they're all the major, fe- some of the major, most of the major festivals have like this, like the festival is just the tip of the iceberg, and there's a huge market underneath. And it's it literally feels like you're in like a, a trade expo for like homes or pools <laughs> or houses. And it, I know it's that's, that was my first impression. Like this is just a trade expo, except they're selling films. And there's all these two bit distributors you've never heard of to. To, and you kind of, you learn kind of straight away, okay, there's like a straight to SVOD, um, you know, straight to DVD kind of subprime market that is not the, you know, the big theatrical films that everyone's trying to do. But you kind of work out there's this, and I, I, I felt like a fish out of water. I did not do well in that environment. It was very kind of how you go. It was like speed dating. You're doing those half an hour sit downs, meet and greets where at the end of the day, you've done 10 meetings and you have, you, it's, there's advantages because you get to meet the heads of all these production companies and sales agents, and some are real, very top tier, and some are great, got great track history. But some are basically uh, not the most credible bunch in the world, and you kind of learn that pretty quickly. But we, 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 didn't, uh, we didn't get any of our money from those guys. We 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 ended up getting onto a private yacht through just drinking with some people at a bar and they were like, Oh, you want to come to our private yacht? I'm like, yeah, cool. And then there's an, end up being some rich Russians and we're like, ended up, we ended up getting the money from that. And so we never, and that was, it was such an organic thing. It wasn't like we intended it. And then the next trip we, we got money from some Chinese and, and then, and then funny cause about two, two or three films later, we got approached by the head of the, the nomads bikey crew when we were shooting a film up in Byron to like option his life story. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, we get, we're taking money from Russians. We're taking money from the Chinese. Now we've got like the head of the bikies <laughs> trying to option his like, his life. So I'm like, if we don't make money on this film endeavor, I'm going to get killed. I was, I'm, I'm going to yeah. get killed. 
but it was kind of wild looking back now i can laugh about it because it all went fine and it was all legit and it was all above board but it was you know we we didn't get the money in the places we expected to we kind of took that risk and I, i'm not saying that's that that's a i think that's a very unusual setup i think most people usually go to these film markets and they they kind of have an idea and they get money from an Australian distributor and they get money from a sales agent and they get maybe a bit of screen Australia money, maybe a bit of state money and they kind of finance their film a very traditional way. And we kind of set out to do that. It's just that the way it worked for me didn't go that way. It went a very strange way for our first couple of films. And now it's starting to fall into a much more traditional um, film financing approach where uh, you, you get your money from several different sources, some government, some tax credits, some soft money, some hard money. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a massive eye-opener because I just thought, oh, if you, you need three million, two, three million, four million to shoot a film, you need to raise that amount of money. And the truth is that that couldn't be farther, further from the truth. It's, it's a lot easier to raise a $5 million budget than just raising five million dollars and that's that's been a really empowering lesson for me because like there's lots mm. of tricks that produce anyone with with a business degree and a little bit of tenacity or, or not a business degree a, a business mind rather i should say that's a correction anyone with a bit of a business head on them with a little bit of tenacity can get their head around how they can pull money from several different sources and it's quite it, i find it like i i treat it as kind of putting a puzzle together or, or completing a video game. I, I kind of, I actually enjoy it, weirdly enough. And I think that's why producing stuck for me. But I, I like to try and solve the problem. So mm. it's not just about, I think, and so now I can confidently say to most people I talk to in a business meeting, hey, if you can just raise 10, 20, 30% of the budget, I'm pretty confident I can finance the rest. And I, and that was, mm. that was a huge empowering step for me because I was like, well, I, how? But now, now, once you understand about tax credit law and and soft money and hard money and debt equity and private equity, then you start to understand where, how all these sources come together and and what's first. And that I think that's the key to producing is understanding that that's one one of the keys is is to understand that money comes from lots of different sources, and if you can kind of master all those different sources, it becomes a lot easier. Yeah, I think you've kind of touched on the biggest question that a lot of filmmakers and actors who are, you know, moving into that, wanting to get their work financed, that's the question that they have is like, where in the world do I get this money from? And it's from my experience of um, getting things funded is, you know, for me, it's so important to ask for help. And as you say, like learning about these different aspects of financing, I'm, I'm a busy woman, Jim. <laughs> I have lots of things to do. And so I know that my yeah. capacity, like I'm not going to learn all of the different ways in which to get funding within the amount of time that we mm. need to get funding. And so it's so much, I just think, you know, asking for help saying to, you know, the production company, we need another producer on this. Um, let's go yeah. out and find someone who does know this so I can learn from watching them and learn from seeing yep. what they can do. Um, and that's, that's been super helpful for me. And so I think that that is, you know, when, when people do have a script and do have a project that they're like, I don't know how to get funding besides doing a Kickstarter or approaching the government mm. for mon money and, you know, those mm. things. 
Uh, so very rarely work out to get the whole amount of money that you want. But it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's such a, the finance part of filmmaking is probably one of the most important parts of it because that's how you get your thing made. That's how you do the thing. But it's, yeah, it's yeah. so many different ways that you kind of have to grasp and it's yeah. not easy, I would say. No, and I think I think that as Australia, I really think that we're we're quite we we're guilty of breeding some lazy filmmakers, and I'm one of them. So I can I can talk about it and I can own my own. Thoughts. I'm not I'm not throwing mud at other filmmakers. I'm I, I, I was I was lazy to begin with, and we get bred into this environment of because we have such an amazing federal and state body funding and Screen Australia and all the states. Everyone just thinks, oh, well, I have a great script and I go to the government and Screen Australia and, and, and some producer will finance the rest and, and, and you know, that's how people do it. And it's not it's not the case. Um, often you don't get federal or state funding. Maybe it's not their cup of tea. Maybe they don't have the appetite for that particular project. It's harder to get genre funded than a lot of other projects. You need to have some certain level of cast or it needs to be a certain marquee level of project before those government bodies will put taxpayers funds into your project and that's really what they're administering here is taxpayers money so they've got a certain mandate and I, I've got a healthy respect for those funding bodies however I think we've bred lazy filmmakers as a result of having to rely on the government and rely on those things because you look at the Americans and how they do it and they they've got such out-of-the-box ways they're like well what about we've got such and such in this film they're a brand it might be a particular actor what about product placement? And so they, or they, or they, and and so I think Americans really trailblaze Australians in terms of seeking sources of funding because they don't have that federal funding body in America. They don't have a screen America. You know, they have, yeah, a couple of the states have some rebates, but it's very, very far and few between, and it's very, very, it's a lot more complicated and harder to access. So I think because you've got such a, uh, like a, like a. That we've got that ingrainedness and they teach you that at afters and they teach you that at all the film schools. We're really taught to rely on that. And I think once you actually start realizing that if, I, I, I had this epiphany that a film is basically being a producer is almost like being a foreman or being a like building a block of apartments. Right. And people go that, how do you get that analogy? Building a block of apartments, Jim is nothing like making a film. And I said, so I go, no, well, you've got your, you've got your, your script, which is your blueprint. And what do we do when we sell apartments off the plan? Well, off the plan, apartment selling is simply buying something that doesn't exist now, tomorrow. And that's all I'm doing when I'm selling a film. And we have this thing in film, which are very, and I know films that have been completely financed on this film. That film, I think it was uh, Chef, by, I, think it's got, I think it's got Helen Mirren in it. But I was talking to the sales agent who, who basically financed that and we have a thing called pre-sales, so we can sell. Obviously, all films are licensed to territory by territory, so you can license the films for Australia, New Zealand, then you've got North America, which is America and Canada, USA and Canada, then you've got CIS, which is like Russia and all those countries, not that they're buying anymore, but uh, probably a bad example. But you've got, you've got, it's broken down into territories, not countries. And if you look at, most people look at North America as being the kind of big chunk of the pie. And that might be, I would equate that to being your kind of, if we divide up the apartment building and every apartment was a territory, and then you've got your premium apartments on the top, like your penthouse apartments, I would say, okay, yeah, North America is like your top penthouse apartment. That 
that that territory is very lucrative and they often pay a premium because it's such a big demographic but then you've got all these little sub apartments so how do we finance a film well, we pre-sell those territories we, we pre-sell apartments of that apartment complex and we raise the money before the film's even made and there's a lot of sales agents there who can pre-sell your film if you've got a decent poster and a decent um, name attached or a decent director attached they can earn a decent material they can pre-sell those apartments so once you start learning about pre-sales and, and gap financing, which is all that, which is a, which is a world until its own, and then you learn about the tax credits that some countries are, are offering. We as Australia, we offer a really generous tax credit of almost up to forty percent, not quite, but it's almost there. Um, once you, once it all evens out, um, we it really becomes okay. Well, I get four, I'm just under forty percent back from from Screen Australia for the tax credit, and I get this much from pre-sales and I get this much from Gap and I get this much from, okay, it's not, you start getting, once you get over that 50, 60, 70% of the budget, you're like, hold on a second, I don't really need to raise the private equity for 100% of this budget. I only need to raise 15%. Well, that's a lot better than, mm. you know, that's, and, 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 you know, going to investors saying who you're looking to ask to put 15% private equity into your film and saying, hey, I've got the rest of the 85% of the budget. That's a really empowered, empowering position to come from. Because you're not saying, hey, can you please finance our $10 million film? Please, Mr. Richman. Um, you're saying, hey, we've got a business plan. We've raised 85% of the budget. We've got a 15%. This is where you sit in the waterfall. This is your ROI. And you've got these are your low, mid, and high estimates. And they're like, okay, this is not, these guys are, they've thought out their plan. And it's a it's it, it empowers yeah. you because you're you're really just asking for that last little bit of private equity. So it's once you once any producer who's interested in actually putting themselves through the torturous um, years of actually <laughs> no it doesn't take years it, it just just who is willing to actually try and find and understand the different types of film finding financing that once they get their head around that it's it does it becomes less daunting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's something that I learned recently um, from a production company that I'm working with is that when we're looking at investors to go, hey, we've got this much of the project funded, so I'm working hmm. for free in, for the... Um, for like the, the pilot episode to get the series optioned. And the director is kindly also working for free. So what we do is we say, okay, how much would it cost for me for five days as an actor and um, the writer of the series? And then how much is this director? Because they're, you know, and um, like they've got credits behind them. What would their salary be? Mm. And then we go, okay, so those salaries combined, say that's, I don't know, five to $10,000 for the week. We've got that funded yeah. in quotation marks because, and yeah. that is that what um, soft equity is, is those things that you can kind of say, oh, we've already got that funded, but it's because I'm working for free in this instance before it's, you know, fully optioned that, that we can say is like funded. No, you're exactly right. That, that you're talking about, um, you know, basically services for equity. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is there's a there's a word for it in the film industry, and it's it's actually copped a bit of a bad rap because, unfortunately, there were some producers a couple of years ago who went a bit too far with it. But um, it's called reinvestment, and so often like post production companies or you know writer director producers, anyone above the line on a film set will say, look, hey, I'm I'm worth this much, this is my fee, but yeah, have a instead of 
taking all my fee. I'm going to reinvest a portion of my fee back in the film. And it's, it's, it's a soft, it's a soft money, it's a soft money way of, of financing a film. And you might be able to, you know, finance a film on, you know, you might be able to raise 10% of the budget on that, you know, or something like that. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's those little, it's look it's, it's like I said, it's really problem solving. It's looking for little, little things that you can pull together to bring together your finance plan. And yeah, I think that's, if people can, you know, get through that, that then they, they're going to be very successful film producers mm. because, so I, I think, and, and then obviously like, so there's that side of it. There's understanding the different ways films can be financed and, and how you can get money from soft money, from reinvestment or from, from, um, the other thing is, you know, um, loans, you can, you can, while distribute a lot of distributors and, and sales agents won't give you money up front. They'll pay you on delivery. So once you finish shooting the film, they'll give you the money. But your big problem up front there now is, okay, well, how, how do, I need the money now. I need the money to shoot the film, right? So, but there are so many financiers out there. Like there's, you know, and, and they're all, these guys are all established lenders. So they're like Bank of California, Headgear, Piccadilly, Fulcrum, um, Ingenious. There's, there's a bunch. But basically, if you just Google f- film financing, tax credits, film financing gap, you'll come up with a list. Mm. And these guys, once you meet a certain some eligibility criteria, and it's like an application form, they will lo- they will cash flow you that money. If you've got if you've got a distribution agreement or you've got a promissory note from a established distributor or sales agent that they're going to give you a certain sort of minimum guarantee or distribution guarantee, but it's not going to be paid until the very very end of the project. You can loan that money now at a very relatively palatable interest rate it's not it, we're not talking oh. stupid high interest rate we're talking yeah like, yeah we're talking like a little bit more than borrowing for a house but not, not it's not like putting on your credit card it's somewhere yeah. in between i don't want to i don't want to throw these companies under the bus and name their interest rates but it's the interest rate is 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 not too bad it's pretty good and that yeah banks or bank of california that pacific mercantile there's a bunch that these banks will lend you that money because you've got that promise from a distribution yeah, company okay so a lot of people think well, I, okay I, I need a distribution company to fund my project no you just need them to to like your pitch and your script and then give you a promissory note that if you go and shoot that project and you deliver what you're saying you're going to deliver on paper to them they will give you this much money and if that distributor's not you know it hasn't been around for two seconds and they've actually got a bit of it like you know if they were a network or a streamer or they were a, you know, a company that banks would go, oh yeah, they're not going to default on their payment. They're a legitimate company. They will mm. lend you the money up front. And that's another thing that was really eye-opening to me is that there are banks that will lend you this money. Oh, wow. I had no idea about that. That's so interesting. I feel like people listening to this, like, it's just, it's so crazy that this information, like, it's not if you Google how to produce a thing, like it's not out there. It's so like, so I think that this is just so helpful. Um, now we do have to wrap up, which I'm so <laughs> devastated no, about. No, that's cool, that's cool. So Jim, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate no, it. I've, I've learned lots today. I'm sure that our <laughs> listeners will have learned a lot as well. Um, so uh, you work, you co-founded Lunar Pictures, as I said at the start of the episode. You have Moonrock for yep. Monday out on Binge. And is it Amazon Prime at the moment? Uh, I think you can rent it on Amazon Prime or buy it on Amazon Prime as an outright uh, thing. But it's, yeah, it's streaming on Binge or Foxtel. Yeah movies and yeah i think it's available on a couple other platforms but yeah it's a humble little indie film we shot and 
we've got a bunch other we're in development for. So yeah, we're we're still trying, Rach. As I said, we're, we're just getting, we're, I'm just getting a beginning. I'm just getting started. <laughs> You're just now a film producer. <laughs> yeah, no, I've finally made it. Yay. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jim, thank you so much for being here and we'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, see ya.